And now, The Mentors Radio, one of the most popular and unique shows on the air today. Here each week, remarkable CEOs and leaders, including host Tom Laurie and Dan Hesse, and their guests will mentor you, challenging your thinking about life and work. Sought after for their ethical leadership and advice, and for helping others succeed throughout their careers, now these same CEOs, the mentors, want to help you achieve your highest level of profitability, success, and personal fulfillment in life, at work, and in business. Learn more and check out the show notes at TheMentorsRadio.com. That's TheMentorsRadio.com. And now, here's your mentor. Welcome. I'm Dan Hesse, and I'll be your host today. Thanks for joining us. David Foster is one of the most illustrious composers of our time. With 16 Grammy Awards, Junos, an Emmy, and a Golden Globe, his nickname as the Hitman is well-deserved. He has created hit songs for a diverse array of artists, including Barbara Streisand, Whitney Houston, Michael Jackson, Madonna Chicago, and Andrea Bocelli. This being the mentor's radio, David personifies the word mentor, playing a key role in the discovery and career launches of Celine Dion, Josh Groban, and Michael Buble. Welcome, David. I appreciate you breaking away from Thank your you, music Dan. and those beautiful voices to listen uh, to my voice for a few minutes. Sure. And thank you. And we should say to your audience that I was... 19 minutes late getting on the Zoom. And you know that Dan is uh, Mr. Punctuality. So he was at three minutes after one, he was phoning me like, where are you? Politely. But anyway, my apologies, but we're here now. Uh, it's great to finally have you. So, you know, you grew up, David, in British Columbia and what kind of read like a Donna Reed show household, very supportive parents, six sisters, no brothers. You said you were immersed in estrogen. You know, I kind of grew up in a similar environment, four sisters, no brothers. I guess the good news is we both got our own bedrooms. What was it like? What, you know, growing up like that and how did being immersed in estrogen influence you? Well, I'm sure that you would probably agree with me, Dan, that, um, you know, when you're growing up and it's supposedly hard times, you know, we, we didn't have any money, but we weren't poor. And my bedroom actually was the laundry room with an army cop. But I, I was just like, happy as can be and it was a happy household my sisters were and are always they've always been supportive and not a bit of jealousy and and you maybe can relate to this i, I was sort of treated like a king because i was the only boy um my father probably was a little bit annoyed that my mother and all my sisters sort of doted on me um but it was a it was a it was a great upbringing with uh, lots of support and lots of discipline and i think um gosh i mean if you go all the way down the road on that route i mean it's maybe what's missing in a lot of places today yeah i agree um you know one of the benefits for me is i was never intimidated to talk to girls you know in <laughs> high school and college and what have you because i was surrounded by my sisters and their friends who were in the house all the time so that was great so right, but, kid, but before you ask your question but i would say that um you had your sisters i had my sisters and the piano so i had i had a, i was a double threat Oh. <laughs> yeah, I didn't uh, I didn't have a uh, talent like that, which actually <laughs> leads me to my my next question. Um, your mom was cleaning the piano. You were very young. She hit a key. You yelled out. That's an E. She calls your dad at work. He leaves work. Uh, he's so excited because he knows you have perfect pitch. I think you've described it as being able to hear in color. What's it like to have, you know, again, if someone like me, no special talents or skills, what's it like to have a gift like that? And 
Was it a blessing or could it be a curse because expectations were likely higher for you? Well, I'll answer the question, but first to back up a second, you have a lot of talent because what you did with running a monster company to such success, that's a major talent uh, unto itself. No different than my talent. Well, different than my talent, but just as equal. But to answer your question, um, Perfect Pitch is exactly that. It's a, it's a blessing and it's a curse. And now that I'm older, it's like muscle memory or it's like a muscle and it atrophies. And I've talked to other people that have Perfect Pitch and my Perfect Pitch is gone. After having it my whole life, it's gone. Yeah. So it's it's really more confusing. And to explain that, if I was to, you know, I hold up this pen and it's black and it's always been black. And then all of a sudden somebody says, no, that pen's not black. It's blue. And you go, no, wait, it looks like black to me. No, it's blue. So that's what losing your perfect pitch is like. Uh, and it's very frustrating. But like everything else, you just work work around it. Well, not yet. Yeah, better than what Beethoven went through, but um, sure. yeah, uh, uh, that's that's interesting. I, I wouldn't I wouldn't have guessed that. So I remember February 1964 like it was yesterday. Our family all lived together in an apartment in Norfolk, Virginia. We huddled around this black and white TV set to watch the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan Show. You mentioned that you know hearing the Beatles kind of changed your life. That's when you knew you wanted to be a musician. What was it about the Beatles that struck such a chord with you? Um, well, I was a classical nerd up until then, um, age 12 or 13. I had taken classical lessons. Thankfully, my parents somehow found the money, 50 cents a lesson to get me classical lessons. And it gave me such a great foundation for what I would do later on in life. But my father was an amateur musician and a really good one. And we were together and we heard on the transistor radio, the Beatles for the first time, even before the Ed Sullivan show. And we heard, she loves you. And I was like, wow, I've never heard anything like this. That's what I want to do in my life. And my father actually kind of liked the music as well, even though he was, you know, old school. And that was a, a, a transformative moment for me to hear that kind of music. And it really propelled me to go down the, the pop, quote unquote, lane rather than classical. Because honestly, Dan, if you think about it, <clears throat> I was a good classical pianist. In fact, maybe even very good, but I wasn't great. So my life would have been, I would have been talking to you today as the number 400 classical pianist in the world, meaning basically I would be making 25,000 a year, even today in 2023 and scrambling to get a, you know, a, a concert or a show with a, with a symphony somewhere. So thankfully I wasn't a great classical pianist, uh, but the, it, it gave me great basic training. Yeah. Well, you, know, you talk about the Beatles, they, they've impacted so many musicians I've talked to over the years. For me, that's when I got into music, but I, not having talent, I became kind of a stereo audiophile nut, kind of equipment nut. I loved the interview with Tom Petty. He said they were just the coolest people I'd ever seen. That's why I wanted to be a musician, the way they looked, the way they dressed, the way they talked. He said the fact that the music was good, that was just a bonus. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I don't think he, I don't think he's wrong. Uh, I don't think he's wrong at all. They were just super cool. And but the main thing about the Beatles was every song that they did and they made all that music in nine years, Dan, nine years from start to finish. And every single song had a personality. Every song, just pick it, help, hard day is night. Uh, she loves you. They all had like this great personality. I don't know how they did it. It was just that that magic combination once in a lifetime. 
Now, given that connection, in in reading your book, Paul McCartney was one of the very few musicians, I think you said you didn't really have that great a connection with musically when you got together to try to work together. Um, Why? Well, it's a good question. And I've learned now in my old age that um, people, the greats like Paul McCartney or like Herbie Hancock or Miles Davis or pick the genre. Well, not even just music, but we'll stick with music for now. When I got with Paul McCartney and, and was asked to produce him, I went to his house in London. We spent a few days. I imagined that we were going to sit and we were going to write The Long and Winding Road Part 2. Or we were going to write Abbey Road Part 2. And guess what? He had no interest in doing that. He he was off on some kind of musical tangent that I couldn't relate to because he had already done it. It's like when I, um, <clears throat> jumping ahead, when I took over Verve Records a few years ago, um, the, the great jazz label. And my first call was to Herbie Hancock, the great jazz pianist. And I said, Herbie, you and Jack DeJohnette and these other guys, you're the last remaining vestiges of the Miles Davis band. Let's all get together and do a tribute to Miles Davis. And he was like, why the hell would I want to do that? I'm not interested in that at all. So Paul wasn't interested in me taking him backwards. He only wanted to go forwards, which you could argue his forward thinking of the last decade or two has not really been forward, but that's, you know, that's his prerogative. We'll be back in a few minutes with our guest mentor, the hitman, David Foster. Go to our website, thementorsradio.com and click on the list of shows to listen to past guests. This is Dan Hesse, and you are listening to the Mentors Radio Show. And now back to the mentors where remarkable ceos challenge your thinking about life and business welcome back this is dan hesse and i'm with the mentor to the stars music producer david foster remember you can also listen to the show or any previous show via podcast on apple TuneIn, spotify google and more on any device at any time subscribe at thementorsradio.com so, David, your your parents were really supportive of your decision to become a musician. They I guess, spent practically their life savings to get you an electric piano and an amp. You and your bandmates went all the way from you know BC to the UK. I think you were backup players to uh, the Chuck Berry. You met Bo Diddley, Cat Stevens, but it was a difficult lesson for you in the music business. I don't think you would consider that trip a success. You came back to BC kind of penniless and kind of homesick, but you stayed with it. You, you know, you stayed with your, you know, kind of career choice of becoming, of being a musician. Why? Well, uh, to say it was in my blood would be an understatement, but um, you, 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 to this day, I sort of hate London because London was so cruel to me when I was 16 and 17 because uh, I couldn't get any work. I was overqualified to be in a rock band and underqualified to be in a jazz or classical band. So um, I, I just didn't fit in anywhere. And I stayed for a year trying to get work and just couldn't. And I finally, when I turned 17, I called my parents and, you know, sheepishly asked for a, an airline ticket home, which they probably had to take a bank loan out to get me home. But um, again, it was <clears throat> it was good training. Uh, and I, and I, And just jumping forward, to listeners that this is a mentoring program. So I would say that the reason why I think that The Voice and American Idol and all these shows, America's Got Talent and all, the reason why they don't make stars is because 
all these contestants come from the bedroom to the stage and they have not done the work that goes on in between like me slugging it out in london for a year playing in pubs and getting beer thrown on me and getting booed at and playing for three people and you suck and all that stuff <laughs> that you it you just need that and so you see these people on the tv shows and they've got talent they can sing and all that but you need to that needs to be coupled with experience and i, I know i'm jumping way ahead but no uh, it, it's a it's a good point to make so if you want to be that person that goes on America's Got Talent, go out and get your hands dirty first. Don't just come from your bedroom because as well as you sing, it's just not going to serve you that well. So talking about, you know, your kind of your road and getting your hands dirty, kind of the long road, you you played in bands, you were a songwriter, you were a session musician, you were a you know, great keyboard player, one of the you know most demand in-demand keyboard players in the L.A. scene. But you decided you didn't want to do those things. You wanted to be a producer. Can you describe for our listeners what a producer does and why you wanted to produce? Sure. Well, the decision was made by, uh, again, I, I, I look at you and all your success, Dan, in, in the business world. And I think that there's obviously so many parallels in, in what we both do. But um, I, I looked at being a studio musician was a great job. I mean, I was working every day and every night. Uh, I'd play jingles in the morning. I'd play on the Fifth Dimensions record in the afternoon. And then at night, I'd be up all night on George Harrison's record or Rod Stewart's record. And it was exciting. And we were making a lot of money. I was making, in those few years that I did it, probably 150000 a year, which in the 70s, That's it would right. still be a lot of money. Um, mm -hmm. And it was phenomenal. Um, but I, I looked at the guys that were older than me and they were like still doing sessions. And I thought, I don't want to be 50 years old and be a studio musician. I would look across the glass and that's where the producer sat in the control room. And honestly, I, well, first of all, I wanted to be one of those, but secondly, I learned more from the bad producers than I did from the good producers. Um, Cause the good producers, you know, they, they had it going on and they just were organized and they didn't really let you in. The bad producers exposed themselves. And so I learned what a bad producer was. It took some time, but I just didn't want to stay a studio musician because I felt that it was a, a dead end road. Very interesting. This is Dan Hesse. You are listening to the Mentors Radio Show, and we are with 16-time Grammy winner David Foster. So, uh, David, this being the, the Mentors Radio Show, you've described Quincy Jones as a mentor. What did you learn from him, and were there any other kind of influential mentors uh, in your in your career? Of course, I did. Yes, I did have uh, other mentors and uh, people that you may not know. There was a great pianist in, in Canada named Tommy Banks, who hired me when I was uh, 18 or 19 when I got back from England. He was an amazing musician. But Quincy, let me tell you about the magic of Quincy Jones. Quincy, of course, he's done it all. He's been there. He's been where we're all trying to go. He is able to put his stamp on a record without even being in the room. So let me, let me explain that. So he just demands such a high quality from everybody. So in those few times as a studio musician, when I was hired to play for him, it was on Michael Jackson's Thriller album or the James Ingram album or whatever album he was producing, he could just say to us, David, come up with an introduction for this next song. And then he would leave the room and go on the phone. 
But just that the thought that I'm going to come up with something for Quincy Jones mm. made me work harder. And he could still put his stamp on his sound without always being in the room. Not to say that he was skating because he wasn't. He's an accomplished musician. But that's a talent that I don't think I have. And he he's really the only person that I know that has it. Um, so to say he was a mentor is an, is an understatement. Well, I think you've probably learned a lot from him. You're you're known as being is as being a bit of a I would say almost control freak, <laughs> and uh, and really getting those um, you know those terrific performances. Um, is it fair to say, David, that um, you could be almost a root canal for your artists, but you know, but afterwards with the end product when they listened to it, it was all worth it. Is it would that be fair? I, I think that's it. I love that. I am a root canal. Um, <laughs> no, I think you're right now. Maybe you would agree with me. Maybe you don't. But in my mind, um, making records is not a democracy. Mm -hmm. So because compromise breeds mediocrity to me. So if I'm in charge, I'm going to do it my way. Yes, you can make suggestions, of course. And if it's a great suggestion, I think the good producers know when to take the great suggestion and when not to take it. Um, but it's not a democracy. Now, let me ask you, in your line of work, when you were running that massive company, was it a democracy? No. Um, what I would tell my people is I want you to I, I want to listen to all of you. I want you to give me your opinions. I'm going to listen, but then I'm going to make the decision and I'm going to be accountable. That's so, right. you know, so don't be afraid. Even if you think I'm wrong, tell me that. Mm -hmm. But I'm still going to make the call. So yeah. I think you're you're exactly right. Um, mm -hmm. I, I think it, it you know what you just described applies to to business as well, and it's a word sometimes that in business isn't enforced enough, and that's accountability. You know, yeah. to be to be accountable for the product, you you know you have to take ownership. Actually, a fellow uh, I interviewed a fellow uh, Canarican of yours, Neil Young. And oh, yeah. uh, he talked about uh, his producer was David Briggs, mm -hmm. oh, who always David was Briggs. In, in his ear saying, you know, be great or be gone, <laughs> uh, which is, um, I think, a, a, an interesting an interesting way to put it. Um, so business people, by the way, in, in this regard, you know, we're interested in how to get the most out of our people. Uh, you know, how to just get that that best performance. And you've always been able to coax performances out of you know, your artists that they didn't even know they had. How do you do that, get that extra without pushing them so far, they kind of give up or quit? Well, I have pushed artists too far from time to time. Um, but uh, it's it's a it's a it's a big balancing act, of course. And um, sometimes the tempers fly. And, and uh, I like to just I'll finish. I know you're going to go on a break in a second, but I'd just like to finish by saying that like when I ask a singer to sing it five more times or 10 more times or a hundred more times or whatever it is, it's like, I'm not doing it for me. I'm doing it for them. It's like, I don't want to be sitting here while you sing it 10 more times. I wish you got it right the first time, but you didn't get it right. So you're going to have to sing it nine more times. So I get more to pick from. And that sometimes causes a little bit, as you can imagine, a little bit of strife. And that's the control free part and the dictatorship part. But, you know, comp I mean, good is the enemy of great. I'll leave it there. Good is the enemy of great. Well said. We'll be back in a few minutes with our guest mentor, David Foster. Remember, you can listen live to our Saturday broadcasts anywhere in the world by going to San Francisco 860 The Answer. This is Dan Hesse, and this is The Mentors Radio Show. And now... 
Back to the Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. Welcome back. This is Dan Hesse, and I'm talking with hitmaker David Foster. So, David, it seems that you know almost immediately when you hear potential greatness, uh, that tent in Quebec where you heard Celine Dion, listening to a cassette tape of Josh Groban when he was in high school, Michael Michael Buble, kind of a a wedding singer. Um, What is it that, you know, makes the lights go on for you and you you know you're listening to someone special? I think, Dan, that the the answer to that, it's kind of, it's, the answer is ineffable. You can't put it into words. And I think if you talk to anybody that does their job well, they sometimes can't put into words. It's not that they don't want to explain, since you can't explain it because it is kind of ineffable. But um, I think the answer that I've come to, the conclusion I've come to in my life is that I'm an average person. I have a, I have a talent and, and a pretty extraordinary talent, but I feel in my listening, I have the ability to be average because if you're an elitist, if I was an elitist, I would never have been drawn to somebody like Celine. She's a commercial artist, but I think I heard her. I went, I think millions and millions of people are going to love this voice. I think that makes me the common man, not, not a special person. I mean, I heard what uh, millions of other people heard and they're not, they don't have musical talent. They just love her. That's uh um, that's interesting. But you, by the way, you, you also said, kind of following up on that, that in reflecting on your career, you wish you had spent more time finding and developing new talent rather than, you know, it being a little easier, or more seductive to working with established stars. It's kind of hard for me seeing the, the number of great talents that you, you know, discovered, for lack of a better term, but at least put on the map. Uh, well, you know, what, why, why do you... Why do you feel that way? I think the answer, Dan, is uh, commerce. And uh, I, I say that shamefully. <clears throat> when I think about somebody like Clive Davis, who your audience may or may not know, you know, he's discovered mm-hmm. Whitney Houston. He discovered Blood, Sweat and Tears. He, I mean, his list of discoveries is almost endless. Now, in my my defense, I will say that Clive didn't have to go into the studio for four to eight months at a time and make records with these people. He discovered them, put them with the right producers and songwriters, and then he could move on to trying to discover the next person. But I always, uh, you know, I, I always took jobs where I would get paid. And, you know, when you discover a new artist or try to discover a new artist, you don't get paid very much money. Okay. I'll let you make an album with, uh, you know, Josh Groban, but you're not going to make much money at it because he's unproven. So then when somebody like uh, Madonna comes along and says, hey, make some songs with me, you know, you're going to get paid well. So I I always uh, uh, erred on the side of commerce. And that's why I say that I didn't always err on that side, but I it was always in my brain. I have a lot of children and a few ex-wives, as you probably know. And um, <laughs> so, so, you know, making money was important to me, not the most important thing, but it was commerce always played into it. This is Dan Hesse, and you're listening to the Mentors Radio Show, and we are talking with iconic music producer David Foster. So, uh, you know, David, you say that hits are how you keep score in the music business, and if you're not trying to make hits, why bother? You know, the back of your autobiography, uh, Hitman, lists, you know, all your nominations, your awards, and what have you, is, you know, are hits nominations awards is that how you personally define success in this in this business or is there more to success than that 
Well, it's certainly in my, the younger David Foster certainly defined success that way. And in fact, it became sort of my identity. Now that I'm older and I'm reflecting and I'm doing other things like touring with my wife and not really making records anymore and not writing hit songs anymore. Um, you know, I know my place and I think it's important for everybody in any business to know your place, to know when it's over and when you have to move on to the next thing. I'm 73 years old. I can't think like a 16 year old anymore. I barely could do that when I was 16. Um, so, and, and you have to think very, very youthfully um, to have hit records. So, but I, but I know a lot of people in the business that they're still plugging away and they just keep banging against the brick wall. And like my mantra has been retreat and attack in another direction. When I got to the end of the two, end of the 1990s, and when it's when I first realized, oh, I don't, I don't think I can write a hit very easily anymore. Uh, that's when I went for Josh Groban and Andrea Bocelli. Uh, and then ultimately Michael Bublé too. We didn't need to be on the radio to have success. Uh, TV was our radio. We'd put Michael Bublé on uh, the Today Show, and he would sell eighty thousand copy, eighty thousand albums that day. I mean that that doesn't exist anymore. But that allowed me to have another twenty years in the business without having to worry about top forty radio. It's a long answer to your question, but uh, and I probably didn't even answer your question. But by the way, you know you've. You know, you mentioned in a conversation we were having, you know, we were talking about the Netflix documentary and, um, you know, you've really opened up a lot about your personal life and you let the director just kind of um, you, you didn't have any editing rights with no. respect to with respect to the, the documentary, which is great for us because we learn more about you and your life, you know, your ups and downs. But but what is it about you that makes you so willing to share so much about you personally that's a really good question dan and, and i think the, the 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 answer is again being like i think a common person in many respects the documentaries that i watch where people do open up are the ones that i enjoy if i was to do a documentary where it was and then he wrote and then he wrote and then he wrote it'd be like i'd be bored with it and i think it would piss people off i mean i, I it's just not the way to do it. And, and, and once you start editing your documentary uh, and saying to the director, oh, please take that out because I, I don't like what I said there. Or, uh, no, we're not going to talk about that. I, I just made it a, a, an open-ended thing, and uh, I let him do his thing. And he, I think he did a great job. Barry Averich is his name. And he did an amazing job, and I left him alone. Contrary to the first line in the documentary, if anybody sees it or has seen it, where I sit down and say, you think you're just going to ask me anything and you're going to take control here. Well, you're not going to, but I don't even know why he left that in there because it didn't happen. He had full control. It was, it was a, I highly recommend it. It's a great documentary. Thank we'll you. be back in a few minutes with our guest mentor, David Foster, discussing developing talent. This is Dan Hesse. And this is the mentors radio show. And now Back to the Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. Welcome back. This is Dan Hesse, and I'm talking with award-winning producer David Foster. So, David, you've had tremendous success in your career and in music, but your personal life has been, let's just say, far, far from perfect. If God gave you a mulligan, would you change anything? I probably would, but I wouldn't say it on, on this or any other show only because it could hurt somebody. Mm. So I, I, I won't say it, but yes, I would have done a couple of things a little different. 
for sure. Well, uh, you know, they say that, uh, that <clears throat> time or sorry, that, that kind of money and fame kind of corrupts, but it seems as though, and you kind of alluded to it earlier that actually, as you've become more famous and gotten more wealth, you've actually become a better person. Um, why, why do you think that is? Why did you kind of swim against the stream in, in this regard? Oh, I think you're right. And I'm not sure of the answer, but I, um, obviously, you know, you get a little more comfortable, you get a little more reflective in your older age. And I mean, I was young and arrogant and know it all. And, um, again, it was a dictatorship when I was making records and it still is, by the way, I'm making a record right now and it's a dictatorship. It's not a democracy. I'm thinking about the group Chicago, which you didn't ask ask me about, but I loved working with them because I was such a fan of them before I knew them. And when I finally started working with them and I hated the songs they turned in, I said, guys, we're not doing these songs if I'm going to produce you. We're going to write new songs. And I reminded them of their greatness. And to this day, they're sort of pretty unhappy with the road I took with them on the one hand. But on the other hand, it breathed, it breathed new life into their career and they're super happy about that and so i told the director of the my documentary i said go go, go interview chicago because they are gonna wail on me and they're gonna they hate me and they're gonna and then they got in front of the camera and they were nice so it didn't really work out it didn't play out the way i thought it would but they're they're happy with what we did but sort of upset at the same time this is dan hesse you're listening to the mentors radio show and we are with the hitman david foster <clears throat> So your career, David, has been largely kind of behind the scenes as a producer where the artists were out with uh, with the audiences, but kind of now also talking about later in your career. Now you like to be out on stage playing live. What's what's changed? I do. And I, I, briefly, I'll tell you why, because I spent my life, you know, the studio environment is sort of like a submarine, no windows and like this soundproof thing that not so much anymore. But back in the day and I would make music. And then just hand it out. The artists would go out into the world and they would get to perform what we created together um, and get that feedback from audiences of the songs we did together. And I never got that. I just moved on to the next artist. So now in, in performing live, I get to play the songs that I wrote and produced. Not obviously I don't have Celine Dion and Michael Bublé and Madonna on tour with me, but I have great singers. The audience loves it. And I get that feedback that the artists I've worked with have had their whole lives. Yeah, I can. Um, I, I've seen you play, and I can, and, and I can uh, definitely see that. So you said um, somewhere I, I read it that you'd like to be a game show host. Um, if you could pick one game show to be, Price is right. Host of, Price, Price is right. And why Price is right? I don't know. You know, I, I love game show, show. I love game shows so much. When I was like eight, nine, and ten years old when we finally got a television, I would fake being sick to my mother and, and, oh, I can't go to school today just so I could stay home and watch The Prices Right and other game shows. I, I'm just obsessed. And honestly, Les Moonves, the great chairman of CBS, um, is a friend of mine. And when the when Bob Barker retired from The Prices Right, I thought for sure that I could get that job. And when he gave it to that guy, uh, I can't think of his name now. But Drew Carey? Yes, really good. He, he, he's kind of aloof, but he, he's good. I was so bummed that I didn't get a chance to. Of course, I wasn't famous enough, but in my mind, I, I, that's the job I wanted. Uh, well, there's one game show that we watch every night, my wife and I. Jeopardy. We record it. 
Um, we watched Jeopardy. Yeah, me too. Oh, it just uh, I'm I'm addicted to that. But, but, uh, and why, by the way, Dan, why is it that some nights I feel like I'm the smartest guy in the world and other nights I feel like I'm the stupidest man on the planet and I can't get one answer? You know, for me, it's the categories. You know, I have categories I'm really good at and categories I'm terrible at. But it's yeah, it's probably rest and all sorts of things like that. But you're you're right. I mean, some days you're hot. But um, and that's why what's so, um, you know, not to digress, but what's so impressive about these people that win t- day after day after day, they're good in every category. I know it's a, it's embarrassing. Yeah. So um, you've become a great kind of uh, philanthropist through the David Foster Foundation. Uh, why has that become such a major part of your life? Yeah, it's a, a tribute to my mother, uh, among other things. My mother was a great woman. Um, 35 years ago, she suggested that I help a child. And I, up until my age 35, I, I was helping nobody except myself. And then at 35, a light went off. It was like, man, you better start giving back, you know, or you're just an idiot. And I gave, started giving back in a big way. And this foundation, it's a lot of work, as you probably know, because I know you do a lot of charity work. It's not just my name on it. It's my foundation. We've got close to $50 million in the bank now, so it'll go on long after I'm gone, maybe live on longer than my music, and as it should be, it's super rewarding, and it's a lot of hard work. I mean, a lot of hard work, but I I love it, and uh, I don't say that as a complaint, um, but I just don't like, quote-unquote, celebrities that, you know, excuse me, lend their name to something but don't really do the work. Hmm. So... um... Reflecting back on on your career again, you've worked with, I mean, just reading your your you know your bio and, and who you've worked with, you know, you've worked with so many incredible artists. Is there anybody that you regret never having had a chance to work with? Well, the person on that list used to be Stevie Wonder. And then a decade ago I did work with him. We made an album which to this point has not come out for various reasons. It may come out someday. So uh, I can't, uh, I can't really think of it. I'd like to work with Sting. He's a friend of mine. I love his music and we, we, we've hung out, we've, we've done things, but he's never asked me to work with him because he doesn't need me to be honest. He's, he's so amazing. Um, I wanted to point out that um, at the top of the show, you, you said you gave the accolades, which I appreciate. And you said 16 Grammys. Let's point out to the people listening that I have 31 losses. I've lost 31 times. And the winner is not me. Just wanted to throw that in there. Well, the way I would do is I would add the two up and you look at nominations plus yeah. wins and that's pretty darn, pretty it's, darn it's, it's, If I was a baseball player, I'd be doing well. Three, 333. <laughs> um, we'll be back in a few minutes with our guest mentor, hit maker, David Foster. You will find all of our show notes and links at thementorsradio.com. When you're there, make sure you subscribe so you don't miss any of our shows. This is Dan Hesse, and this is The Mentors Radio Show. And now, back to The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. Welcome back, everyone. This is David Foster, and I am a guest on The Dan Hesse the Mentors Radio Show. And Dan, I just want to say to you, uh, I've enjoyed this. I know we have going to go a little longer, but I want to tell the, your audience that when you and I met, I was so excited to meet you because I love 
people that are at the top of their game and you were running this giant uh, mobile company uh, and uh, I met with you with your son and you were so kind to me and so gracious. Uh, and that's no doubt the style you used to run that huge company, which is why you were so successful and why you did so well. And uh, I just wanted to throw that in there. Thank you. And it's it's always been in my brain the day I met you because it was such a great day. Well, Deb, you're so nice to say so. I mean, I felt the same way. I was like starstruck. This, is this the David Foster? This, uh-huh. this is some other guy with the same name? And you were just such a regular guy, and you were sitting in the back seat at the day. Fun, wasn't it? With my with my youngest son, and we remember that day like it was yesterday. And if your youngest son now is probably a lawyer or something, right? He's not. He's uh, he's uh, he and his older brother started a company together. So they're so he's uh, twenty four now. So, Great. Well, yeah. it, it would make sense that they would do well. My last two guests, David, um, actually Andy Reid and Paul Hobbs. Uh, or what many would consider workaholics. But they said, look, if you really enjoy your work, you know, it's really not a trade-off between kind of success and happiness. If if you do, if you if you do love it, that workaholics can be truly happy in life. Do you agree with that? I agree with that, except I would uh, just add to it that <clears throat> when you are a workaholic, there's some drive-by shootings that occur and there, there's some fallout for that. And the, the family suffers and the, the, the mother suffers and the children suffer. Um, you do your best, but, you know, a classic, just a quick classic example. Probably one of the biggest moments of my life was the bodyguard when I did the music to the bodyguard, Whitney Houston. And the big premiere, I was going to ride with Kevin Costner. And, and the big premiere was on a, I don't know, Wednesday afternoon or night or whatever. And it was the same night as my daughter was, uh, one of my daughters was in a play. Now she was playing like a tree or something. It's not like she was like the star of the show. She was playing a, a tree. But to this day, she still busts me for not going to her play uh, and going to the bodyguard premiere. And I, I, you know, I don't even know who's right. But the fallout can sometimes be uh, devastating and tragic for the family. But, you know, they, they get to have a great life. And, and there is that. Yeah, I think, you know, loving your, your work is, is when I think about happiness, it's it's necessary, but not sufficient. It's hard to be happy and not love what you do because it is where you spend most of your time. But you know, if you're also cognizant of are the people around you happy, the people you're working with uh, and your family as well, I think it helps to, you know, kind of contribute to an overall, you know, kind of to an overall sense of, of, of happiness. Um, question, elevators. I know you're working um, on on Broadway or, you know, you're, you spent more time in New York. You ever getting more comfortable with uh, with elevators? I don't like New York, and I and I still don't go in elevators. I I've been in an elevator five times in the last forty years, and they were situations like I was having a surgery, and they wouldn't let me get off the table and take the stairs. But I um, mean, I literally don't go in them. And um, <clears throat> the joke used to be that I was afraid I'd hear my own music in there, which could be, but um, I, I just don't like them. It's claustrophobic to have the highest degree. So, David, is there is there anything that um, I should have asked you that uh, that I didn't? Well, I think you've done a terrific job. Uh, a question that um, I, I got asked once that I think maybe was the best question that was ever asked of me was, do you think music would sound any different today if you hadn't been born? And it's a really terrific question. And 
I'd have to say, uh, with no modesty, I think pop music would sound a little bit different today if I wasn't born. Well, that's a, that's a heck of a legacy. You know, I um, I like the way that uh, if it was in your documentary that you talk about the future, kind of the number of summers that you that you have left. Uh, I know you've gotten to know Muhammad Ali through your foundation work, and he had a saying, you know, don't count the days, make the days count. And your your daughters who have turned out terrifically, you know, in spite of you being a workaholic, it just they look they look like they they love you immensely. They turned out terrifically, and they talk about you. You're kind of joie de vivre that you'd be probably the first one to volunteer to be cryogenically frozen. <laughs> um, you know, but the ancient Greeks, you know, they had a belief that if you're remembered that you've achieved immortality and what you just described, which is you've changed the way music sounds, you know, you've left this legacy of timeless music. You know, I think you, David, have achieved a, a form of immortality. So I really appreciate you joining us today. It's It's been just a, a, a pleasure to talk to you and, and a privilege to have you on a show on our show. Um, to our listeners, please go to the mentorsradio.com for show notes and other resources. You can also listen to us online on any device at any time on any podcast platform like Apple, Google, Stitcher, TuneIn, or Spotify. Join us next week at the same time for another edition of the Mentors Radio. Until then, this is Dan Hesse signing off. Remember, you're never too informed or experienced to stop learning. Thank you. It's been The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. To get more information about the program or a sponsor, to download a podcast of today's show, or to leave a question for our host, go to TheMentorsRadio.com. That's www.TheMentorsRadio.com. The preceding program, copyright CBJ, LLC. All rights reserved.